0: Everyone, I'm Nikki Sharma, an anaesthetic reg, dog lover, and a recovering workaholic.
1: And I'm Nadia Taylor, an anaesthetic SHO, mum to two little ones, and self-proclaimed foodie.
0: And you're listening to Coffee and a Gas, a podcast about all things well-being for anaesthetists of all ages and stages.
1: Looking after ourselves is more important now than ever. We're here to explore our bad habits, fears, and concerns, as well as learning the strategies to combat them and feel well.
0: We're chatting about things like stress management, diet and sleep, and talking to some pretty great people along the way.
1: So whether you're listening to us with a cup of tea in hand after a tough day at work, or nursing your morning coffee waiting for the bus, we hope you enjoy this journey of feeling well together. Today we are hugely excited to have Dr. Michael Mosley joining us to talk about healthy eating. I don't think Michael needs much of an introduction. He is a scientist, journalist, producer and TV presenter. He's a pioneer of intermittent fasting and even reversed his own diabetes, along with my dad's high blood pressure, with the 5-2 diet. Michael, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Absolute pleasure.
1: It really is an honour to have you joining us and discussing... Uh, nutrition, healthy eating for the busy anesthetist and how we can optimize our nutrition to make us more productive.
2: A very good mission statement.
1: (laughs) Great. (laughs) So first, if, if you don't mind, let's talk about you as a doctor and what was your day like in terms of what you used to eat when you were practicing?
2: Well, um, I graduated back in the 80s, and um, I, you know, the food in the canteen was pretty stodgy back then, and I'm not sure it's improved a lot since, uh, because I was talking to one of my sons yesterday, uh, Jack, who is a junior doctor up in Manchester. He's also been working across the northeast and the northwest, and I asked him what hospital canteens were like these days, and he said, really pretty dreadful that uh, there's still kind of chips with everything. There's more... Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds familiar. There's There's a
1: token salad bar now.
2: (laughs) Exactly. He said occasionally there's salads there, but uh, he was pretty uh, rude about uh, most of the places he'd been, big and small, and he said also in the smaller hospitals around four in the afternoon everything closes down anyway and then if you're on call uh, basically you get together with a few others and you order pizza uh, or some other takeaway if you're lucky Um, and uh, throughout the night if you're on call you tend to snack off the vending machines so that sounds incredibly familiar very
1: familiar familiar.
2: (laughs) it is kind of distressing to see how little things have changed Um, I was also um, having a look at uh, a report which came out last year in 2020. It was a report of the Independent Review of NHS Hospital Food. And this was primarily looking at patients, but again, uh, they were pretty rude about the sort of food that was available. And one of their more intriguing recommendations uh, was uh, that people at the top, by which they meant sort of board and chief executives, should eat with the patients and with the junior doctors and should eat the same food, and uh, they reckon that would improve the quality of the food. So uh, I think, you know, I I don't think things are great at the moment, and uh, too much stodge. In fact, Jack said that when he was an F1, he put on 10 kilos, Uh, and uh, that was mainly because he was kind of eating rubbish food. And these days what he does is he basically cooks twice as much food the previous evening and brings it in with him. And if he has access to uh, microwave machines, that's what he does, because uh, he says otherwise he's just going to be, you know, he's going to be seriously overweight.
1: Yeah, I'm very impressed he's that organised. I wish we could all be that organised to cook double the night before. I think I've taken the I am an an intermittent faster and I've actually I find that incredibly useful when it comes to work because it means that I don't actually I have to take my food and I can't go towards the vending machine but for me that only works two days a week and then the other days I am absolutely tempted by those takeaways when you're on a night shift and they really are not good so um what yeah, this is just a huge problem that we're seeing. And it'd be interesting to hear about how we can change that. Nikki, you had something to say about kind of the evidence of obesity.
0: Well, I was quite interested because there's there's some studies, there's not a lot of studies on how doctors eat and their own eating habits. But there is some studies to show that doctors actually eat quite poorly and um, also have quite high diets of sugar, saturated fats, salt, etc. And it's just... I wonder what you make of that, of people who who have more information than the average person about what healthy eating is, yet we don't actually make as good choices as you would expect when it comes to eating. And I'm just wondering what, what your thoughts are on that.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. I was also looking at some of the data and the studies and um, most of the studies have been done in health workers generally. We know that unfortunately in the nursing staff, something like a quarter of them are obese, um, which is um, pretty close to the national average. Uh, Doctors, I'm not so sure, but I'm (laughs) uh, I'm pretty right. I'm sure you're pretty right that uh, there's a lot of very bad eating going on there. And I think a lot of it's about um the opportunities uh, we kind of know what we should be doing, but when you're tired, when you're stressed, when you're busy, uh, then you basically go for the most convenient stuff that is to hand. And we also know that, unfortunately, there's still a culture of, you know, people leave boxes of chocolates around and biscuits, and if you go into, I'm sure if the, uh, you know, if I was in a surgery um, or if I was um, in an operating theatre alongside, there would be the sort of restroom and there would be piles of junk in there left by grateful patients. And once upon a time, you know, people used to bring cigarettes um, home from abroad, they were duty free, they would give them to your friends. You don't do that anymore. Uh, But we do treat uh, junk food as still something of a treat. And, in fact, uh, about a year ago, I was um, filming in an operating theatre where there was a patient who had type 2 diabetes. He'd already lost a couple of his um, toes and was having a few more amputated. And just to my right, out of sight, was a big box of chocolates, which had kind of been left there, <laughs> of which the uh, nursing staff were understandably um, helping themselves to. So I think it's um, a lot of it is about environment. I mean, I'm a complete and utter chocoholic. And if it's there, I will eat it. Uh, Whatever I know, however much I know, if it's in my line of sight, I will just find my hand reaching out and having a chocolate and then another one and then another one. And the same is true of biscuits. So the only way I can contend with it is by not having them in the house, because if they're in the house, I'll eat them. If they're on the table surface, I will eat them. And I think that is something that We have to somehow introduce into operating theatres, wherever it may be, the idea that you just can't have the junk food around, that it's like having packets of cigarettes around. It really is that toxic. And uh, I think that's a a major cultural change. And people still regard, you know, these things as sort of innocuous treats.
1: It's really interesting that you, you say that. And if you think that was bad, then when we worked through the COVID surge... And everyone just wants to show their love for the NHS. But love comes in forms of food. (laughs) Um, The amount of food that we would have delivered was sometimes overwhelming. And unfortunately, a very small proportion of that was actually, so there was some fresh fruit. But the majority was kind of convenience food or treat food. It was not what you would call nutritious but there is that idea that it's it's a treat and we should be treating ourselves because we're working hard but how do we change or kind of challenge that culture of it might be the treat at that time but actually are we being kind or is that promoting well-being in the in the long run or is that just kind of an immediate fix
2: I think that it was a very cunning mood by the food industry back in the 70s. You know, uh, there were things like a finger of fudge is just enough to give yourself a treat. There was very Mm. much a sort of you're worth it culture. And so gradually these things went from being very, very occasional treats to, uh, you know, something that you expected to eat round the clock. And we have to recognize. um, And in a way, you almost have to get together with other people uh, because, you know, it has to be a consensus thing that if you're in a GP surgery, you have to get together with all the medical staff and the ancillary staff and go, look, this is not healthy. And we know that it's great to bring in cakes and things like that. But can we have a vote on it? Uh, can we ensure that if we do bring these things in, they're put in a cupboard out of sight, or something like that? And really, to recognise just how unhealthy these foods are, and that uh, we have to act as a unit, because um, you know, otherwise, you're a spoil sport. If you're the person who's going, "Ooh, I don't think we should have these chocolate bars hanging <laughs> around there," uh, you are the spoil sport. Uh, somehow, you have to get people to buy into the idea that this is, you know, the major thing which is driving obesity, metabolic disease and things like that. I mean, I do genuinely believe it is these ultra-processed foods, uh, which once you start them, you do not stop. And we know that when you eat these ultra-processed foods, uh, they are what contributes to hunger and things like that, much more than all the arguments about carbs and fats and things like that. It's these things that have been carefully engineered by the food industry uh, to be irresistible. And that's why... I have a biscuit, I don't stop, I eat the whole packet. <laughs> In a way that I'm <laughs> You are never, not
1: alone.
2: <laughs> and I'm never gonna do that with broccoli. You know, I'm never gonna do there's a Thing called the Yale Food Addiction Scale, which is um, from Yale University. Uh, and they get a whole bunch of people to uh, uh, fill in questionnaires and things like that. Right at the top of the list, not surprisingly, is chocolate, followed by biscuits and pizza. And right at the bottom of the list of the world's uh, most addictive foods is broccoli and lettuce and things like that. So uh, it's very sad. But true.
1: I think I'm going to have to go into our trainees' office tomorrow and, and see up. if I can <laughs> get a cohort of people to join me. Because there's always—I don't know about you, Nikki—but in our office, there is always a packet of biscuits or of crisps,
0: just casually sitting on the table to share around. There's also a bowl of uneaten fruit, so you know when the two <laughs> options are there, you know which yeah. one people go for. But I think I think also what's interesting is for healthcare staff in particular you you're also having moments in the day when you're particularly stressed or distressed or you have seen something terrible or you've had a really horrible shift and that's the point where you're vulnerable to going to the office and eating half the packet of biscuits and i think it kind of it takes a certain level of self-knowledge and self-awareness to say okay I know I've done this in the past and I know that's my habit, but that's not necessarily good for me. And it might feel nice right now, but I won't feel great later. And it's kind of having that insight to be able to make that decision.
2: It it helps if the biscuits aren't there. Because then yeah. it's a bit more that of too. an effort to go down and buy them. Uh, it helps if you have friends who go, No, 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 I don't think so. Let's go and have a nice cup of tea. Um, it helps to do breathing exercises. I don't know if you're familiar with 424, four, but that's a very good way of sort of coping with stress in the short term. You inhale through your nose to a count of four, you hold it for two, and then you breathe out to a count of four. And uh, this basically switches on your parasympathetic drive and that lowers your heart rate and your feelings of stress. I've been doing a series for the BBC, uh, which is available on BBC Sounds, uh, called Just One Thing. And one of the episodes deals with breathing and uh, the impact that deep breathing has on reducing stress. So you have to find other ways to cope. And as you say, it's very much about realising that when you consume the packet of biscuits, you will feel better for about 10 minutes and then you'll feel awful. Uh, and uh, we are conditioned. And unfortunately, the more you do it, the more you respond to stress by eating junk, the more your brain will crave those things. And it's finding the other things. And again, I think this is very much about teamwork. It's about collaborating with other people. Uh, You have a chat. You say, I'm feeling really stressed. I could, you know, back in the day, you would have had a fag. Indeed, people still, you know, you were stressed. You went out and you smoked a packet of cigarettes uh, behind Mm -hmm. the bins. On the whole, we don't do that so much now uh, because it's much, much harder to do. And, uh, uh, And this is the equivalent of going and smoking the packet of cigarettes behind the bins. And you have to think of it like that, that uh, these are habits which everyone did once upon a time. I mean, it was, you know, back in the 60s, doctors, nurses, everyone just smoked like crazy until it was obvious uh, that this was linked with heart disease, cancer and things like that. And uh, the same, as I said, Mm -hmm. is very clear about junk food. It's strongly linked with type 2 diabetes, metabolic disease, heart disease, dementia, you name it. Uh, Bad sleep, you know, uh, way beyond simply talking about being a bit overweight. It really is linked to most of the horrible diseases of ageing. And somehow we have to get that message across.
1: So going on from talking about kind of junk food and how we manage stress, what about the... We as anaesthetists have to be pretty cognitively on the ball all the time. And I say to... When people see me on my fasting days and I prefer to have a period where I don't eat until later in the day and they cannot understand it and I turn around and say actually I feel more awake and more switched on when I do that but I appreciate that's what works for me and not what works for everybody what do you think are the kind of important features about nutrition and how that links to our kind of cognitive ability and our productivity on a day-to-day
2: Sure, there are two different things. One is the food you eat and the quantity and the quality of what you eat, and the other is the pattern within which you eat it. So the first thing is we know very clearly that a Mediterranean-style diet, this is one which is rich in oily fish, olive oil, nuts, legumes and things like that, uh, is strongly linked. Uh, to incre- uh, decrease risk of depression, anxiety, and greater cognitive ability. Uh, there was a study called PrediMed, which is one of the biggest and best nutritional studies ever undertaken, where they were randomly allocated to either going on the med diet or a low-fat diet and followed for, I think, about four or five years. And they had to stop the study early, but it was obvious those on the med diet were doing so much better. They not only had a third of the rate of heart disease, but half the risk of developing type 2 diabetes, but they also showed decreased risk of cognitive decline. So these were people who had type 2 diabetes, so they were already at risk. But we know that what the Mediterranean diet does, at least in part, is it seems to feed your microbiome. Uh, The good bacteria, if you like, that live in your gut. And one of the things that happens there is that uh, they produce anti-inflammatory factors um, and these travel to the brain. And there's quite a lot of evidence that inflammation in the brain is linked to depression, anxiety, and also uh, cognitive decline. So a Mediterranean diet um, seems to be super healthy and for the brain. And there have been quite a few studies now demonstrating that you take people from a kind of junk food diet, switch them to that diet, and within about three to four weeks, they're feeling better and they're thinking better. They're thinking more clearly. And unfortunately, it's not enough to just switch to a Mediterranean diet most of the time because um, studies by the Food and Mood Centre in Melbourne have also shown that if you eat junk food, um, even if you're just doing that, say, one day a week, That also has a negative impact on your brain and on your mood so that's kind of the reasons why you should be eating mediterranean i'm a huge fan of it and also uh, i'm a big fan of fermented foods Uh, but there's also intermittent fasting now uh, back in the day 2012 uh, i was making a horizon uh, called eat fast live longer and that's where i first came across it and i came across a researcher called professor mark mattson at the National Institutes on Aging. And he introduced me to the research showing that if you cut your calories two days a week, uh, certainly in animal studies, uh, this was associated with a boost in the brain of something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And this is a hormone that Mm -hmm. seems to stabilize brain cells and culture and nurture new ones. So he'd shown in animals when he stuck them on a 5-2 diet, uh, that they grew new brain cells, particularly in the area of the brain associated with memory. And he's doing further studies now. I mean, the other thing you report, which is sort of clarity, that also seems to be something that a lot of people who practice 5-2 eating report. Not everyone. Some people find it distracting. These days, I actually recommend people um, consume around 800 calories a day rather than 600. The 600 was based mainly on animal studies. And uh, the rats wrote to me and told me they were getting really hungry. So:
1: Six600's tough. I must say I was very grateful when you gave me those extra few hundred. I really was.
2: And then there's time-restricted eating, which is a different form of intermittent fasting. And the idea there is you extend your overnight window within which you are not eating. So if you stop eating at say eight o'clock at night and you don't eat again till the next morning, 10 o'clock, then that's a 14-hour fast and then you eat within a 10-hour window, and that's known as 1410. And that is based primarily on research done by Professor Sachin Panda at the Salk Institute in California. He's played around with different protocols from 1212 to 1608, but he reckoned 1410 is optimal. And he's doing studies now in junior doctors, in farmen, in people who do a lot of uh, uh, overnight work and things like that. Uh, because there is evidence, um, for example, we know that firemen and policemen, uh, their major cause of death is not fires or being stabbed, it is heart disease. And we know that if you work nights, your risk of heart disease is greatly increased. So he's interested in looking at whether you can reduce stress uh, by imposing a sort of uh, time-restricted eating pattern on them. And there is some some pretty decent evidence now, certainly accumulating, that uh, time-restricted eating uh, also, is beneficial for the brain, and that's why it's so unbelievably popular on the west coast of America amongst the techies. And so, um, Professor Panda frequently gets invited to go and talk to the head of Twitter or Google or things like that. They're all desperate to keep their brains in great shape, and uh, he he's doing some pioneering, interesting work. So I'm delighted that you're you find it really. I find the same thing when I do it. I just kind of makes me feel more on the ball. But obviously, it's not suitable for everyone.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, interesting, the topic of night shifts, because obviously, in anesthetics, we do a lot of night shifts. And the most people do eat quite a bit on those night shifts. And you obviously eat quite a lot of snack type sugary foods. But do you think there's a place for intermittent fasting overnight, not just for blood sugar, but also the whole giving your gut a break at a time where it usually wouldn't normally be kind of digesting? Is that something that you think might be helpful? 100%.
2: 100%. And interestingly, my son Jack, the junior doctor, I um, gave him all the research. I actually wrote a book called Faster Sleep, which goes into the science behind um, both how, what's going on when you're asleep, but also shift work and how to, uh, you know, improve it. And so he incorporated that into his life. And what he does is he takes his food in with him uh, and he has a sort of meal at eight o'clock at night. Then he has another sort of meal around midnight. Uh, which he's brought in with him. And then he doesn't eat again until eight or nine the next morning. And if he's feeling peckish, then he has a handful of nuts or he drinks quite a lot of water. Uh, And if he's feeling, you know, he needs a bit of a lift, then he also has a light box because light is a very powerful way of waking you up. So rather than drinking caffeine, uh, he uses a a sad lamp that's 10,000 lux. Uh, And that will really perk you up. Uh, you have to use it judiciously, but so he does a uh, basically a twelve-hour fast, pretty much, and then he goes uh, back. He drives back home, uh, and then he has a sort of a light meal, and then he sleeps um, between about sort of ten and about five in the afternoon, and then repeats. And so he finds that very beneficial. And another friend of mine, who's a fireman does the same thing. But farmmen also, you know, they they do the night shift. They get there, they get lots of carby, junky food to eat, lots of, you know, sausage and mash and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, comfort foods, which they sort of eat at two in the morning and then they're kind of woken up throughout the night sometimes. But he does the same thing. He doesn't eat between uh, midnight and 8 a.m. And then he goes back, does some exercise, uh, has a light meal, goes to sleep, gets up, eats. And both of them find it very beneficial. And as I said, the research is kind of underway at the moment, looking at that. Um, so it is something I would recommend having a look at. As I said, uh, my book, Fast Asleep kind of goes into this in much greater depth and also the kind of science of sleep and what goes on in sleep. And again, there's some pretty good evidence now that eating a med training style diet rich in fiber is very good for sleep, particularly for deep sleep. And the stuff which is really toxic for sleep is alcohol, nicotine, caffeine, uh, but also junk food, particularly sugary snacks, uh, and eating close to bedtime. Uh, I'm afraid those are all bad, bad, bad for sleep.
1: Well, I'm a bit worried about the caffeine, especially when you're talking to a lot of anaesthetists. We do love our coffee. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but also, if you want another test subject for uh, nighttime fasting, then that, that sounds wonderful to me. And I think... I should buy a sad lamp for our, um, for our trainee's office rather than eating. See if that picks you up. I think that's a brilliant idea.
2: And there is some decent science behind it. And the other thing I would say, you know, caffeine, it... Entirely depends on whether you're a fast metabolizer or a slow metabolizer. But some people are super sensitive to caffeine, some people are really rapid metabolizers, they get rid of it within, you know, a couple of hours. Whereas some people can take 12 to 14 hours. So we have very individual sensitivities to
1: caffeine. I did not know that at all that it that it can oh, last that's new to 12 to me. 40 me. Now. I that think is... I'm pretty resistant to caffeine now. <laughs> <laughs> you built up
2: the tolerance. Yeah.
0: Imagine what some of our consultants are like. One thing I did want to ask you about is um, gut health, because I think that's, hmm. again, something that we um, traditionally don't learn much about in medical school, and we don't talk to our patients about it. Um what is the new evidence about gut health, and what should what should what kind of things should we be doing maybe to take care of our guts more?
2: Sure. So as you know, the gut microbiome consists of one to two kilos of microbes. There are about a thousand different species down there, about a hundred trillion individuals. Uh, there are roughly the same number of microbes in your gut um, as um, cells in the human body. They're a lot smaller. Uh, And um, somebody calculated that the balance is so fine that every time you go and have a poo, uh, because that's mainly dead bacteria, you briefly become more human than bacterial. So the gut microbiome... Interesting. uh, (laughs) There you go. A fascinating factoid for dinner. Uh, But uh, it's our ability basically to uh, use uh, DNA Uh, to measure, or at least to detect fragments of DNA in the poo, which has really revolutionized it. Because before that, you were reliant on growing them, and a lot of them won't grow. So now you can get your biome uh, analyzed uh, for a very modest cost, and really quite quickly. And this has accelerated our understanding of the gut microbiome. We know now that it has a profound influence on the immune system. It also has a profound influence on mood. I was just describing uh, the impact of the uh, Mediterranean diet, which seems to influence uh, the microbiome. What you want is a diverse microbiome. Uh, It's a bit like a rainforest. You want a wide range of different species down there, and the best way you can ensure that is by feeding them a very wide range of foods, particularly foods which are fibre-rich because that's kind of what they love. Uh, And as I said, the good ones down there, uh, they will convert... Uh, the uh, fiber into things like butyrate and other uh, substances which are anti-inflammatory, which is good for your health, whereas the uh, junk food will feed the bad ones that produce pro-inflammatory compounds. And I was just reading um, today an, uh, an interesting piece of research, mainly this done in rats, but which showed the, uh, the impact of uh, junk food uh, on the rat's microbiome and therefore on blood pressure. And what they found was that when the rats were fed of a high-fat diet, uh, they started to develop hypertension. And then they took the microbes, the microbiome, from these rats and fed them to other rats. And those other rats then developed hypertension without eating the junk food. So there was something in the microbiome uh, which was inducing hypertension, which I think is absolutely fascinating. It would be interesting to look at that in humans. Again, we know that uh, feeding, um, doing intermittent fasting or eating a Mediterranean diet, but ideally doing both, is a good way to reduce blood pressure. And the way it seems to do that is by altering your uh, microbiome, making it uh, more diverse and more healthy. So everything seems to be kind of tied in with each other. And I just find that fascinating. And as I said, microbiome also seems to be involved in sleep. It has its own uh, clock And again, uh, as you were describing earlier, if you're eating uh, in the middle of the night when the microbiome thinks it should be asleep, and when your gut thinks it should be asleep, uh, then your body is not going to enjoy it. Uh, Somebody described it to me as a bit like, you know, you go and wake up, uh, you go into the restaurant and you demand food at one in the morning, you wake up the staff, they're pretty damn grumpy. Uh, And you do need also a kind of quite a lengthy period of time, probably about 10 hours or so. Uh, to give your gut a bit of a rest because it takes a huge battering during the course of the day, uh, you know, digestion and things like that. So you need it needs to be replenished. And again, it's a bit like a motorway. I'm mixing my metaphors here, aren't I? Uh, but it's a bit like a motorway. You can only repair the motorway when cars are not roaring up and down it. So if you're just kind of eating around the clock, uh, then it's likely you will develop um, gut-related problems. And again, it would be interesting to know how common that is in anaesthetists, but I suspect probably quite common.
1: <laughs>
0: Probably. Yeah, I suspect very common. I think that's really interesting about the microbiome research. And I'm not sure what the feasibility will be about doing that in adults, you know, have it transferring someone's microbiome to someone else, but I would be interested to see what how, how that pans out.
2: Oh, they're they're doing it. I mean, uh, oh, they're fecal... doing
0: it. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> of course, uh, fecal transplants are the thing. I don't know if you've ever seen a fickle transplant.
0: Never seen it. This is completely new to me. <laughs> it's a treatment for C diff, isn't it? It is it? a
2: treatment for C. Mm. C diff. Nothing else works. This has a ninety-eight percent success rate. That uh, is I saw amazing. somebody on. I saw somebody on death's door, they had spent their, you know, the last five years just travelling to the toilet every half an hour and they were skinny and wretched. They had a poo transplant and within a day they were up and smiling and their days were behind them. Do you think now, uh, as pilot study in on autism, because we know there's a link between your microbiome and uh, autis- and your risk of autism, and certainly, again, in this case, in children. But no, they're, they're looking at poo transplants for a whole range of different conditions, one coming
0: to you that soon. It's
1: incredible. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I look forward, look forward to seeing
1: it. <laughs> there's a famous line from a TV show that a lot of us might have watched. It says, everything comes down to poo.
0: Absolutely. I'm so
1: pleased that we're fi- almost finishing on that topic. <laughs> um so um i must say that you have given us a huge amount of food for thought and i apologize for that metaphor there um but i do challenge anybody who has listened to this for the past half an hour or so to go away and not be inspired to try and eat more healthily the the huge number of benefits that you've described not only for our well-being but for our um, mental and physical health are are numerous so thank you so much for that and going off from your uh, podcast perhaps you could give us just one thing to for us as anesthetists as shift workers as night shift workers to that we can take away one easy bite-sized tip that we can do
2: absolutely get together with your friends and colleagues and uh, ditch the junk food get it out of the room get it out of the cupboards get it away from your vision uh, because if it's there you will eat it
1: I think what I need to do is take that soundbite and play it on repeat in my trainee's (laughs) office because I'm a bit worried about going in there tomorrow I'll say well it wasn't me this is an idea for all of us I'll blame
0: you We'll blame you.
2: (laughs) If nothing else, just try it for two weeks and see what it feels like. Try replacing the junk food with some healthy food around for a couple of weeks and just give it a go. Get everyone to buy in two weeks. It's doable.
0: Two weeks. I think we can do two weeks. Definitely. You can even do an audit on this, guys. I know it's
1: ARCP (laughs) season coming up. So for any trainees looking for a research projects there you go there's two weeks worth of an audit
2: absolutely and then you can have a vote afterwards and see if you want to bring the junk back and if you do I'll be very sad But <laughs> <laughs> I, I, respect, I respect democracy
0: Michael thank you so much for talking to us today you've given us so much to think about I've definitely uh, taken a lot away and I'm going to think about my eating habits and I'm going to talk to the people at work about it so thank you again and um, yeah it was very insightful thank you
2: absolute pleasure good luck
0: thanks for tuning in for this episode of coffee and a gas we would love to hear what you think so please leave us a comment on the association of anesthetists website
1: and if you found this podcast useful and enjoyable make sure to share it with your friends and colleagues
0: see you next time